Maya Govanen, welcome to Tolkien Lore Channel, and here we are again with Girl Next Gondor for the probably eagerly awaited third installment of our series on Tolkien and the Critics. This video is going to be a little bit different than the previous two because we were addressing mainly literary criticisms. I will have links to both of those videos in the description if you want to go check those out, haven't seen those yet. This one is going to be more on the topic of Tolkien being what we might call a man of his time, that's the phrase a lot of people like to use, and the alleged sexism and or racism in his works. And my position, as will become clear, is that there really isn't a whole lot of sexism or racism in his works, at least on the level of him being either consciously or subconsciously racist or sexist. There is, of course, racism present in his works because dwarves hate elves, elves hate dwarves, things like that happen. But that's really kind of one of the reasons why I think he's not the one that's being racist because he's explicitly addressing some of those topics. But we'll get to some of that. Girl Next Gondor, of course, is here to address some of these with me. We're going to start with sexism and we're going to start with kind of the lighter side of these arguments and work our way up to the heavier more substantial types of arguments that you might find out there and the first topic that we're going to address is what many of you might have heard of is called the Bechdel test and I don't know why it's called the Bechdel test I guess the person who came up with it was named Bechdel or something I don't know but if if memory serves the exact test is whether a story has any scene in it in which two females are talking together about something other than one of the male characters in the story. And if it doesn't have any such scene, then it does not pass the Bechtel test. And this is supposed to be kind of a, a test of whether the story is so male-centric that it's kind of a sexist story. So one of the first things to note here is, and we'll get into it, but the the Bechtel test originated in a comic strip and was probably not ever meant to be taken completely seriously, but a lot of people do take it seriously for one reason or another. But I think even if we do try to take it seriously, there are good reasons not to think of the Lord of the Rings as being sexist merely because it fails this particular test, which it obviously does. There are zero scenes in the Lord of the Rings and even less so in the Hobbit where there's, is there even a female character in the Hobbit? I don't think there is. Um, I, I mean, just, other than by reference. Ones. Well, yeah, I mean, by <laughs> reference, you have Thorin's sister, I think, but that's kind yeah, of and, it. and Bilbo's mother and, and aunts and stuff. But Right, you get references to female characters, but there's no actual female characters on the stage at any point. Whereas in the Lord of the Rings, at least we do get Eowyn, we get Galadriel, we get Arwen even makes a couple of appearances, much less so than in the movies, but she's still there. But mm -hmm. at no point is there any scene in the Lord of the Rings where you have two women talking together at all, really, let alone, a, well, there actually is one scene where you have two women talking together, and it's Eoreth talking to, I forget exactly who, her but kinsman, telling, her yeah, cousin or something. Yeah, and telling telling her about, oh, that's so-and-so pointing to either 
I can't even remember who now, but but there's. I mean, she she points to Frodo and Sam, and she's like, "Yeah, Frodo went and wrestled with Sauron in the heart of Mordor." And then she points to Aragorn, and she's like, "He talked to me, you know." Um, yeah. So it's very much like humorous, gossipy, and it's about like two other male characters. So yeah, so I mean, Lord of the Rings clearly fails the Bechdel test if we want to take it seriously. That said, I don't think this really matters, and I have my thoughts on that. But what are your thoughts first and foremost? Yeah, well, I think um, the the Bechdel test and um, there are other tests like it. They're kind of similar. Um, I think one of them is one of them is like you could you could you could you replace this character with a lamp and have it still be the same like <laughs> outcome. Um, and the Bechdel test, it was like a joke. It was a joke poking fun at the fact that it's often difficult for women to find representation of themselves in you know mainstream narratives in a way that's not explicitly like you know centered around some some male figure some sort of patriarchal concern if you will um so it was a joke it was a joke that was poking fun at, at arguably a a problem um of sexism in media um so like a serious problem but treated humorously um and i think you know i don't know of anyone who seriously thinks that you know it fails the Bechdel test ergo it is inherently awful and sexist and horrible um I think you know pe people um kind of use it as a shorthand though to see how male-centered is this story right. and I think as you point out like in Lord of the Rings it's a story about dudes it's a story about war and you know friendship and like there is some there are female concerns happening off screen both um sort of you know Eowyn obviously big female character has an arc has a heroic engagement in battle um has political concerns and ramifications so she's kind of like um the female who is active on that sphere but for the most part the female characters like you mentioned they're not taking part in that main narrative it is a story about nine dudes who go off to try and save the world um and yeah I mean uh, I don't think that that necessarily, I mean, we have to be really careful in defining terms here, um, because if you get slippery with you know, what does it mean that, you know, do you have to have a perfect ratio of 50% male to 50% female and each one gets, you know, are we counting the n words of dialogue that they get, and, you know, do we have to aim for perfect equality to be able to say, definitively oh this work is not is or is not sexist inherently and therefore evil um so um yeah it fails the Bechdel test is centered on men and dudes um and there there are relatively few female characters it's that's true um I don't know but again I I think that's all that that so so-called test tells you all it tells you is that this is a story about dudes primarily right. yeah and a couple of thoughts to add to that one is you know it is naturally as you say a story about dudes because of multiple reasons one of them being the setting it's kind of a medieval setting in a fantasy universe and this is going to come up again when we start mm -hmm. talking about Eowyn which of course we will because we have to Very um good. but in a medieval or really almost anything pre-modern era, you're just not going to see women doing the kinds of things that the nine members of the fellowship do. And 
there's a perfectly good reason for that. There's, for one thing, you don't want your women going to war because your women are your ability to repopulate in the event that things go really badly. So you can't risk them in the way that you can risk men. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I'm not saying that polygamy should be allowed just to repopulate a nation, but biologically speaking, that's kind of just ingrained in the species and virtually every species. You know, the women generally don't do anything dangerous because they're kind of needed in other roles, needed at a very fundamental level. And not even just the ability, but in a, again, in a pre-modern context, you've got women who are probably literally the sole source of food for the next generation for at least a year or two mm-hmm. so they're kind of stuck doing the child rearing whether you know anybody wants that to be the case or not until you develop baby formula or that child is capable of eating something more substantial than you know mother's milk i mean there's just really no way around it the other thought that i had though was you could do the same thing on the flip side, because you do have stories that are written usually by women, uh, but from the other side, and, and the example that came to my mind was Pride and Prejudice. I am pretty sure it would fail the Bechtel test in reverse, because everything centers around the Bennett girls in that mm-hmm. story. It just does. I mean, I will admit up front, of course, that Mr. Darcy plays a much more substantial role in the story than probably any any female character does in The Lord of the Rings, even Eowyn. Yeah. Nevertheless. Well, it's a romance. Well, yeah, of course it's a romance. So your, ro- I mean, so your romantic male lead is, I mean, he's your secondary protagonist, and Eowyn is one of many heroic figures in a book that has just, like, way too many characters already, so. <laughs> right. Nevertheless, I don't and I haven't read Pride and Prejudice, but I've seen two adaptations of it. And I don't remember any single scene in which you find two guys talking together about something other than the women who are the focus of the story. Well, but can you, I'll I'll counter that by saying, can you think of a scene in Pride and Prejudice in which two women are discussing something that's not even implicitly revolving around the question of marriage but that again i mean that just shows you like that's a reflection and a critique and commentary in austin's case on that society you know that's that's what the women are concerned with because that's what women of that time and of that social standing would have been concerned with um likewise you know tolkien who's like yes he's created a fantasy world or a fantasy you know an alternate history to use sort of one of his preferred ways of describing it um so you could say well he could do whatever he wanted you know he could make up some wacky new rule that would allow like men and women to be um completely like egalitarian at least in certain societies um and he didn't do that and but he's also drawing very very heavily on like you said real world traditions of medieval and even pre-medieval um that just would have you know had these assumptions baked in Right. So, I mean, the, the you know, his literary influences here are also um, apparent um, just as much as you could say, well, the logic of well, women wouldn't have gone to war in a medieval era. It's like it's Middle Earth. It's not real. He could make women go to war all day if he wanted to. And um, but, you know, what's he drawing on? He's trying to write something that could go on the shelf next to the the Prozetta and like Sigurd and Fafnir. 
So he's, you know, he wants to write something that's in that tradition and he draws on the elements of that tradition, including just the, you know, cultural and aesthetic mores and the, um, the focus on male heroic characters and, you know, kind of leaving the sexual politics out of it. And, and that's the other thing, you know, once you introduce a bunch of female characters and a bunch of male characters, like, <laughs> yeah, there's going to be like romantic subplots and tensions and um, it gets, which, you know, which there is. Well, there are, the yeah, Rings. already, even with Eowyn, like, you you know, he gives us one female character and then it all erupts and she's got a protective older brother and a stalker and Aragorn thinks she's, you know, sweet and everything, but not really his type, whereas she's totally in love with him. And yeah, so, um, yeah, you, you, you give one female character and the whole romance thing just sort of explodes from there. Um, so it, yeah. that's not the story I think he wanted to tell right um yeah and just just to round that out i mean yeah you're right the uh story in pride and prejudice is kind of all about marriage and of course it is a romance novel so you kind of expect that um nevertheless it is still the case that the main characters are all women and your secondary protagonist barely ever talks to another guy on scene i mean he does talk to um i, I forget the other main guy's name that marries the other bennett sister now uh but you know they do talk in a few scenes but not actually that many uh so you know i'm just it's just one of those things where it's like the nature of the story dictates the kind of things that are going to happen in the story and like you said tolkien was writing in a tradition which was very much focused on this kind of thing and he was writing it originally when he started writing his early versions of the silmarillion stories of course he was writing it as a replacement for the lost english mythology right so it had to be in that same kind of vein he couldn't just make up whatever rules he wanted he was trying to recreate something that followed a certain set of pre-established rules mm -hmm. so um the next main sexist argument that i want to touch on is kind of a lowbrow one and it, it tends to be kind of lazy and it's usually stated not necessarily in these exact words, but it's the idea that there's just so few women in the story and they do almost nothing in the story. Now, this is kind of a variation on the Bechdel test because, again, we're getting the, you know, there's just not very many women, which means they don't really interact with each other much and therefore don't have conversations about things other than the guys in the story. But it's a little bit different because now we're talking about the fact that, you know, we've got you know, in the entire story, the f the main female characters that are really relevant to anything about the plot would be Arwen, and mainly because of her relationship with Aragorn, Galadriel, who we know shockingly little about yeah. from the actual Lord of the Rings, Eowyn, who is largely important because of her relationship to Aragorn and Theoden, mm -hmm. and then Rosie Cotton, largely because she's Sam's love interest. And then we have Yoreth, who is just kind of comic relief <laughs> yes, <laughs> and therefore not really a major character. Um, and of these, of course, Eowyn is the only one that does a whole lot of anything significant in the story. Now what she does is pretty darn significant. I mean, she kills the witch King, right? which is a big deal, but you know, out of the scope of this giant story, one female character doing one thing of significance is admittedly a small amount of stuff 
Now, a lot of what we had already said about the the Bechtel test kind of applies here too. It's the same kind of argument. It's like the the tradition in which Tolkien was writing, you know, makes that sort of thing unlikely. And it's also, you know, if we want to extend this beyond Lord of the Rings, we could go back to the Silmarillion and there's also very few major female characters. But the one interesting thing that I find when I look at the female characters in both stories is that they tend to be in some ways, some of the most significant characters in some ways. We don't really know this just from the Lord of the Rings. You kind of get hints of it, but Galadriel turns out to be quite possibly the most significant person left in middle earth. That's not, you know, a Maya like Gandalf or Sauron because she is pretty much literally the only elf who has been to Valinor other than a few exiles and a returned Glorfindel. And Hmm. most of the exiles, we don't even know who they are. We know they're there, but they don't do anything. No, they're, they're bailing. (laughs) Yeah. They're all just waiting for the next boat out. Um, And so Galadriel ends up being an extremely potent character. We learn a lot more about that once we get the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales. But when you start looking at the Silmarillion, some of the female characters are actually kind of really, really big deals, like Luthien. Luthien is arguably the most significant character in the entire legendarium. Uh, And it's not like she's just significant because she's Baron's love interest and therefore sparks this quest. She actually is the one who kind of makes the quest succeed. Baron is actually kind of tagging along most of the story. It's a weird reversal of the typical damsel in distress thing. She is a damsel in distress at one point because her daddy locks her up in a tree and then she breaks out and rescues right. she's Baron. The one who, she, she rescues herself, then she goes and rescues Baron. And then she is, you know, he tries to, he, it's kind of funny because Baron tries to send her back home to daddy. Right. And he leaves her with the dog and she follows him and he's, she's like, you don't actually think you can do this by yourself. Right. So, you know, he, she, he even tries to kind of like be like, right. You know, poor Baron is out here. Like, I can't possibly, like, she's just a poor innocent, you know, little elf maid and I have to protect her because that's my job. And then you know, from, from like the best, like best of motives, um, you know, I do think Baron has like this very sweet chivalric streak that just keeps running into the horrible reality of like late first age Valerian and then Luthien's there yeah. like yeah we tried to tell you <laughs> <laughs> well and it's not even just chivalry I mean there's there's a certain amount of you know their relationship is very much a reciprocal one in that she wants to come along to help him and he wants to send her away to keep her out of danger it's you know, you don't have to be chivalrous to want the person that you love the most not to be put in literally the most danger that you could ever be in in Middle Earth. <laughs> yeah, you know? and then, you know, his his view, too, is, you know, I'm going to die either way, probably young and in a horrible way. And, you know, right. you are potentially you could live in bliss for untold ages like you're so much, you know, you've got a You've got a chance here, girl. And like I I'm just an wanted outlaw with a price on my head and, you know, yeah tons of trauma so um but so i mean back to the question of okay bechdel test like yeah we can kind of laugh that off because again it's it was meant it's meant as just sort of a a thought-provoking joke um but then this question of um female characters in 
Lord of the Rings, there's hardly any. And then in the Silmarillion, there's more. Um, but I, I mean, I think maybe a, a 30, 70 ratio, maybe 25, 85. So, um, there's still a lot of dudes. There's a lot of dudes and, and the dudes tend to be the ones who kind of in general, you know, there are notable, notable exceptions, but in general, it's dudes doing stuff. Um, Tolkien even references this uh, in his late writings where he's like, well, there probably were a bunch more women, but they didn't get named in the records because the records weren't concerned. You know, they just, the records are about the war and in this war, like it was right. all, all Finway's sons and grandsons kind of throwing their weight around. Um, so, so I think, you know, the first thing we have to do is distinguish between questions of representation in like literature capital l like the canon you know stretching back into the mists of time and extending into the future um you know is it unfortunate is it a problem um that predominantly we have male characters uh figured as the active ones and female characters tend to be either um just not present at all or reduced to a very specific confined um less active role uh, i would say that that is something that we could consider unfortunate and hopefully you know in need of um addressing just sort of naturally as um cultures change over time i think that starts to change just in in keeping in line with that um so we have to distinguish between is that sexist, which I think like probably it's due to at least partly sexist reasons uh, versus this particular piece. It, that's part of that legacy is kind of, you know, he starts writing um, the Silmarillion stories in like 1917, 18. Um, and then his, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings published in the 50s, Hobbits in the 30s, and then his final writings where, you know, Galadriel, like, for example, is taking on this outsized um, yeah. uh, significance, you know, that's like the 70s. So just within the span of Tolkien's written fiction in this universe, there's a huge span of um, social change that took place in the real world while he was writing. Um, so and then like has continued to take place obviously like stopping in the 70s is not a good barometer right. of the next no. next 50 years or so of uh, of media so um you know i think there's a difference between distinguishing um representation broadly as being of concern versus in a specific work um and i think the thing that you point out is that and again increasingly um the female characters that we see engage with the expectations in ways that are often unexpected. Um, like you said, you know. Yeah, so the the whole idea of Tolkien having female characters who really kind of do surprising things goes back to the really early days, too, because mm -hmm. he's in the very early Silmarillion stuff, we already have the character of Haleth, who is a very young woman who ends up he ends up calling her an amazon i think in one of his letters but she ends up leading one of the groups of the edine who cross into beleriand in the first age because her father gets killed and she ends up being kind of the war leader for her group against a bunch of orcs and the next thing you know you know she's the leader and you know so 
way early on, he's already writing female characters who kind of break the mold. And even though he doesn't write a whole lot of female characters, he does that kind of thing a lot. We saw it with Luthien. We see it with Galadriel as he develops her character into more and more powerful versions. Uh, And there's just a ton of these cases. And it's not even just that they're always you know, breaking the mold, being action hero types. Sometimes it's something as simple as Melian being the smart one and Thingol not being the smart one. Uh, and the, uh, same, the same thing goes with Feanor and Nerdanel. I mean, Nerdanel mm-hmm. is the wise. And, you know, she seems to have been kind of the only really good influence on Feanor. And Feanor, of course, being the hot-headed jerk that he is, goes off and I know you, I'm like stomping all yeah. Feanorian, you know, Oh no, no, do it. I I I fully endorse that Feanor is a hot-headed jerk. Um, yeah. I'm just powerless to resist his other charms. But like he's he's a makes many decisions that if he were capable of doing something wrong, one might call wrong. Yeah. Um and, and I'm a huge Nerdanel fan as well. Like Yeah. Well, I, and the, the other half of that too is the fact that yes, most of his stories focus on men, but as often as not, the men are the screw-ups as well as the heroes. You've got Feanor, who's a screw-up. You've got Denethor, who's a screw-up. Boromir kind of treads the line, screws up, but, you know, Mm -hmm. redeems himself. You've got lots of guys who really screw up in a lot of ways. So it's not like Tolkien is taking, you know, one side and presenting them as better than the other. They're different because... I mean, again, we're talking about a medieval setting. The roles of the two sexes are just going to be different based on the technology. There's no avoiding it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's to say that it's sexist just because there's a lot fewer women and they don't do a whole lot. Actually, I think does a lot of injustice to the fact that Tolkien went out of his way to actually give women more prominent roles than they might otherwise have had in similar types of ancient literature. Yeah, I think, again, there's, you know, distinction to be made between, um, you know, is Western literary canon uh, indicative of demeaning attitudes towards women as, you know, conceived as a whole? Probably yes. Um, Yeah, very complicated, giant question. um, But, like, yes, we can see how um, negative or even just, you know, simplistic views of women influence and then are in turn influenced by capital L literature. Is Tolkien writing within that tradition? Yes. Um, Is he, you know, so therefore do some of those tropes that we viewed universally, we might view as um, unfortunate, make it into his works? Also, yes. Um, But does that mean that he is prosecuting, you know, consciously an argument to support the idea of females somehow being inferior to males. I don't think the text backs that up. And I think that um, if anything, as you said, he includes a remarkable number of, you know, exceptional women. So that's kind of an issue in itself. Um, The fact that all of his female warriors and war leaders, you know, they make it into the record because they're not, you know, average or typical um, females of the, the pseudo historical period that he's writing about, um, but and and increasing again, you know, this is an evolution we can see um, from very early on. You have like 
the earliest Tale of Tenuvial stuff, uh, Luthien's a little bit more of a flake. You know, she's kind of cutesy. <laughs> and then, um, and then like it's, you know, there's some tension in there where um, C.S. Lewis is actually criticizing moments in the Lay of Lathian, the big poem that version of it, which is much more serious as a whole. But there's still these moments where Lewis is like, you know, you're making her sound like some sort of little like Missy. Um, <laughs> and then Tolkien's like, oh, you're right. Like that is kind of, you know, flippant. And she's, you know, she wouldn't say that. She's nobler than that. Um, and then the evolution toward the end where he's got, you know, he gives us a character like Eowyn, um, who has both great, great physical and in the end, great moral um, and sort of almost attaining the more spiritual power she kind of she has both of those um and then at the very end galadriel becomes kind of this increasingly important figure from being like something he kind of came up with out of nowhere when writing lord of the rings to well now she's finrod's sister to well now she's actually like even better than feanor which is heretical obviously but um <laughs> you know the man was getting on in years and maybe was just forgetting some important truths uh, this is all that's all humorous by the way in case that's not obvious <laughs> But yeah, so increasingly in the mythology, we see um, things that would suggest the view that women are the intellectual uh, and moral equivalents, at least of men, um, and are also capable of, if maybe not, you know, prone to um, political and uh, martial even um, maybe not equivalency, but at least uh, competitiveness, let's say. Um, so, yeah, long story short, um, you have to, I think, distinguish um, between tropes in literature and what that might say implicitly about uh, an author. And maybe, you know, I, I feel icky speculating on anyone's sort of subconscious beliefs because it's really, you know, we're not Tolkien. Uh, yeah. We don't know what mind reading is <laughs> difficult, even for elves. Let alone. Right. Well, and you know, if, if this were a living author too, you might have, um, you know, be able to ask him or he might comment directly on these criticisms. Um, you know, these mo the modern <laughs> versions of these criticisms, because of course the, the contemporary ones, um, he, he did respond to, and we've discussed his responses to them. Right. Um, but yeah, all we have to go on is the writing. Um, and Based on my reading of the Legendarium, I do not believe that there's um, a conscious intent to uh, portray female characters as being inherently less worthy than the male characters. Right. And, Which, uh, the, the question could get a lot more complicated than that, but if you boil it down to it, I think, you know. Yeah. Um, now, of course, the this kind of gets into the most what i think the most sophisticated version of the feminist you know tolkien is a sexist argument probably is and that's well okay so he's got eowyn and she does some cool stuff but then at the end of the day he puts her back in her place in the kitchen barefoot probably pregnant uh <clears throat> and that as the most sophisticated version is still to my mind not very sophisticated because it betrays a really poor understanding of what Tolkien is actually saying with her whole mm -hmm. character arc. And I've talked about this in a video specifically about this issue before, but it's worth repeating. 
if you pay attention to what Eowyn becomes at the end of the story, it's the kind of thing that Faramir values. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to read into any character a kind of a direct line from here's what Tolkien thinks to this is coming out of this character's mouth, it's certainly Faramir. I mean, yeah. he specifically says in one of his letters he is that Faramir is the most like him, except for the physical courage aspect, being, you know, Tolkien kind of self deprecating, admitting that he's not a particularly physically courageous person, but saying, you know, of all the characters, he's the most like me. And so if Faramir, who, by the way, is the one who criticizes the idea of war for its own sake and the glory of war for its own sake and the glory of the warrior for its own sake, Mm -hmm. and who values gardens and things that grow and, you know, who, when he praises Sam, he praises the Shire as saying, you know, there must gardeners be held in high honor as Mm -hmm. if that's a good thing. So he is... Tolkien is not saying a woman's place is in the kitchen. He's saying we would all be better off if we were doing gardening and, you know, home things and not worried about all the machismo. So to me, that's the kind of simple response to that version of the argument. I can see why people tend to go that way because what, you know, our culture tends to do is the exact same thing that Faramir decries Gondorian culture for doing, which is glorifying the warrior and, you know, celebrating what, you know, today might be called toxic masculinity. Yeah. Whereas Tolkien was kind of expressly saying, no, that's not really what it's all about, guys. It's it's really more about like, yeah, sometimes we have to engage in war, but it shouldn't be something that we glorify for its own sake. And therefore, what we really ought to value are the things that hobbits tend to value, you know, home, hearth, you know, good tilled earth and that sort of thing. So that's my response to that. Did you have any other comments you wanted to add on that topic? Um, Yeah, a couple. So there's um, a, I mean, I think, I know that, you know, I've seen you talk about Eowyn in the past and like I've seen other people kind of address that issue online and in articles where um you know Eowyn really is a hero because like I said for Tolkien it's it's not just about your physical courage um and Eowyn and the Rohirrim are even meant to sort of be a critique of that very appealing but ultimately for Tolkien you know bankrupt idea of the glory of war and you know seeking death because you could find honor in death um so you know Eowyn transcends that um and and it's kind of funny how you know she's pretty explicitly in the earlier stages she's um you know the only way she can conceive of herself really is by you know she's the one who brings up the fact that this is she 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 tells Aragorn like this is all because I'm a woman um (laughs) you know she's the one who's very conscious of of that question um and and then by the end she you know has transcended just seeing herself as you know i'm constrained by my gender so i'm gonna hide it and go to war anyway because that's the way that you know my culture has told me that i must achieve honor um to you know what do i want to do and well what i want to do is to make things grow and live um like faramir does uh so a couple other points um you know 
Eowyn starts out just with this hero worship of Aragorn. She, you know, has him on this pedestal and she can't really, um, you know, there's a problem with that because she can't really relate to him as an equal. And then, you know, when she finds love with Faramir, what she's finding is like more of a egalitarian relationship where, you know, he actually gets to know her. I mean, yeah, they only have about two weeks, but they think the world is ending. <laughs> you know, there's there's no YouTube, so there's nothing else they can do but like talk about their hopes and dreams. So um, probably pretty intense getting to know you phase. Um, yeah. And and, you know, Faramir is like sort of the supplicant to her. So so that relationship, you know, people say, oh, she just, you know, she gets married off to Faramir and he's just like a minor lord and he's kind of a wuss. And so like that's a real come down. And it's like, not really. That's... <laughs> she's she's the one with kind of calling the shots there um at least you know interpersonally and um and then finally um with regard to faramir but it extends also to eowyn um you know someone makes the remark that yeah well faramir just gets shipped off to athelion and he like becomes a gardener and like everyone knows that aragorn's the one with the real power it's like athelion is not a calm, quiet, peaceful realm. I mean, Sauron is defeated, yes, but there are still, you know, it's it's it's, it's frontier land. Territory. There's orcs around. Like, we still don't know what happened to Shelob. Like, this is, you know, he's going to have to go out to Athelion and try and, um, you know, make it into a garden, uh, which is going to require um, quite a bit of, yeah, some work. And, and who does he choose? Who does he choose to have at his side? Who Who chooses to be at his side? Um, because you know they both kind of choose each other um Eowyn says yeah i'm gonna go with you and i'm gonna take all of my energy and my fight and my gumption and turn it to good ends that doesn't mean she's gonna be done with fighting um you know on whatever level um but she's doing it now for the purposes of creating safety of you know that thing that faramir says she i don't love the sword i love that which they defend um and then Eowyn reaches that same conclusion. That doesn't mean that there's no more need for swords, right. um, but it's, you know, it's turned from, I'm going, you know, I, I worship war to, I will, you know, I am capable of using war uh, to defend something more valuable. And that is, you know, life. Yeah. Uh, anyways, yeah, so that was kind of <laughs> like, I have a few more comments and then I like talk for three minutes. <laughs> No, that's great. I mean, I, I hadn't even thought of it that way before, but you're right. I mean, Athelion is still, you know, in some sense, a f battle frontier because... And and, to and like, again, this is Tolkien um, let us know that, you know, he replies in a letter. He's like, you know, someone's dissing on Faramir. No, Faramir's awesome. And, you know, he's the one that Aragorn trusts to go reclaim Athelion. He's not going to retire to be a scholar. He has years of battle and work ahead of him. And that's Tolkien telling us that, not just yeah. you know inference or supposition well and we even know from the the uh appendices too mm -hmm. that aragorn and eomer had a lot of warring to do after the victory over sauron because there's still bad guys out there yeah and ethelion is the closest to all the other bad guys so you know i mean where do you think some of those battles are going to be fought it's not going to be all done just way far afield some of yeah, it is going to be yeah you can't you can't like get to to Lake Nernan without, like, you'd have to go through Athelion first. That would be the territory you would want to secure. Right. Anyway, ge uh, geopolitics, Middle-earth geopolitics aside. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of covers most of the sexism type stuff. So now we're going to move on to 
racism and there's there's a lot more here and we're probably gonna have to cover them a little more quickly than we have the sexism stuff yeah. uh <clears throat> just so we can keep this at a reasonable time um I, there's a several different categories and one of the main categories that tends to come up is the idea that you know all the and this actually came up relatively recently in a article by uh, Dimitra Femi and Maldonado is the last name. I can't remember the first name, mm-hmm. uh, but they were talking about a lot of the backlash that happened with the Rings of Power series and how people were criticizing the fact that there is a people say black elf. He's actually Hispanic, which I guess maybe he's black Hispanic, Ismael Cordova Cruz, or I think that's his name. Um, and there's, of course, the black dwarven princess. And they wrote this article in response and they were kind of you know, saying that there are racial issues with Tolkien. And one of the things that they say is, you know, all the people of color are bad guys and all the good guys are white. And that's a pretty vast oversimplification as it turns out, because it's, it's not true that simply all the good guys are white and all the bad guys are not. I mean, we've already covered the case of Feanor in the, male versus female context but if we want to cover him in in this context if you're going to categorize him as a race i'm pretty sure everybody would agree that feanor was probably fair-skinned and yet he is kind of the villain the secondary villain of the entire first age because he's Mm -hmm. the one that makes the major screw-up of the oath of feanor and leads the noldor on their doomed and hopeless quest in back to middle earth and causes so much death and suffering when it might have been solved a much better way. And you have any number of, you know, lesser sort of villains. You know, Denethor is, you know, clearly not a hero character. You know, I mean, you've got people at that level. We've got people at the extreme end like Feanor. We've got traitors galore. Mm, Tons of traitors. All all the Feanorians did something horrible. Yeah, Myglin. Um Aeol himself was pretty dastardly dude. I mean, you've got pretty close to an evil elf, yeah. Yeah, and then on the flip side of that, you have uh, various different people groups of darker skin. They're you know they don't necessarily get mentioned a whole lot. And the thing is, Tolkien doesn't mention skin color a whole lot in general. Um, I mean, we're never expressly told that Denethor is fair skinned, but we can guess being Numenorean, he probably fits in with the very stereotypical dark hair fair skin gray eyes look mm-hmm. uh, except he's probably gray by the time you know right. I, think he, I think he's gray by the time of the story but we do have darker skinned people in Gondor who were natives to the area not Numenorean descendants we have in the Silmarillion the people who followed Boar who came out of mm-hmm. the east so I mean the whole idea that it's well all the good guys are white and all the bad guys are black that's an oversimplification at just at that level um did you want to throw in anything else though um yes so there's um two ways of formulating this there's um and i'm not sure which one was specifically used in the article i'd have to double check i read the same article that you did um but i remember i don't remember their exact wording but there's a difference between saying all the bad guys are people of color and all people of color are bad guys and then all good guys are you know quote white 
and all white guys are quote good um right. so there there is you know subtle distinctions with each of them um but i mean not all quote you can say that not all characters that would we would presume and again this is our presumption you know so maybe this is just as much our uh, problem as it is Tolkien's, but um, I right. think you're right that he definitely has that type. Um, you know, the cla- the Numenorean classic that is uh, descended from the line of Elros tends to have that resemblance to Luthien. So, um, fair hair, dark, or fair, fair skin, dark hair, gray eye, um, and tall. <laughs> That's another yeah. big one, which is kind of funny because Tolkien was not, um, you know, a towering <laughs> character from what I can understand. One thing um, we can say is that he was not engaging in uh, what's the term um, when you put yourself into a character who's self-insert like, or I, I forget the term, but like he's he's not he's not putting somebody in the story who's just like him, but awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, except insofar as maybe, you know, maybe he considers himself tall, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking or something. <laughs> he wishes he was tall. Right. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, if we we need to distinguish between speaking about particular characters um, versus speaking about uh, peoples. Um, and But even in those cases, we have um, many occasions where elves... Numenorians, Gondorians, Rohirrim, um, all throughout the history are noted as having um, become corrupt and doing some pretty, like, nasty things just all on their own. Um, human sacrifice in Numenor. Human I mean. sacrifice in Numenor. Well, even, um, you know, human sacrifice, and even before that, um, you know, writing about how the Numenorians. Uh, start sailing back to Middle-earth and meddling increasingly in the affairs of the people who remained in Middle-earth um, and how some of the consequences of that are good, um, but increasingly as Numenor becomes more obsessed with its own sort of uh, smelling, yeah, and wealth, um, yeah. you know, it becomes a name of fear. They start, you know, terrorizing basically people. And, and you know, Tolkien tells us this. He's like, the Numenorians started, you know, doing some messed up stuff and, um there's even an anti-imperialist message in there. Yeah, there's an underlying, and uh, he even starts to, you know, write this little fragmentary story um, Tal about Tal Almar, yeah, which which is not, you know, which is complicated. It's a complicated story uh, in terms of how it's figuring all of these um, things. And clearly Tolkien has an affection for Numenor, um, but he's not going to say that because they're Numenorean, they are infallible. In fact, quite the opposite. He critiques them um, both socially and then individuals within that um, just repeatedly. You know, he he levels critiques. And then on the other hand, we have, um, you know, there's a distinction uh, to be made as well between enemies of our protagonists and villainous bad guys. Um, right. So, you know, we have the peoples of the east and far south um who again it's subtle and they're you know they're all kind of conceived as they're all under the sway of sauron and opposing um you know our our intrepid underdog heroes of the remnants of gondor and, and rohan um but then at the end you know sauron is defeated sauron is like this overpowering demonic demigod figure right he exits the picture and tolkien says well now there's a bunch of people who are like 
they're good guys. They, you know, were being ruled by Sauron because Sauron is like this evil sorcerer who was able to, you know, rule those realms. And they're, and, you know, they're left looking at, at Gondor and Rohan and Aragorn's like, I mean, you guys like want to work out a trade deal or something like, you know, it's, it's, um, and then, you know, the famous line of, of Faramir or, um, given to Faramir in the movies, but the one that Sam Sam actually thinks, um, where he's looking at, you know, this, uh, dead Mordorian human soldier. And he's like, well, that's not some crazy, like monstrous villainous creature. That's just a dude. And like, you know, I wonder what his life was like. It can't have been fun. And, you know, he's dead now. It's kind of sucks. And this is Sam who's, you know, yeah. never been outside the Shire and has some pretty provincial attitudes. But... <laughs> Very. <laughs> I mean, Which, he uh, doesn't even. And, you know, we know his dad is extremely provincial and that can't yes. not have rubbed off you know at all <laughs> definitely yeah but yeah i so, mean he's sitting there explicitly wondering was he really evil at heart or was he kind of forced to do this you know and and, and you can you can liken that to tolkien's experience in world war one you know world war ii is is a different case in a lot of ways because you do have right. the nazi movement and hitler and all that but world war one most people look back at that and it was just kind of the big blunder of the 20 20th century right and Tolkien likely would have had kind of the same idea because there are even stories of like on Christmas Eve, they would have ceasefires and get together and celebrate Christmas together. These people didn't hate each other as the arch villains of history. They just were enemies in a war. Most of them probably wouldn't have fought if they hadn't been kind of forced into it in some sense. And so he's kind of showing that same thing in Middle Earth. It's like, yeah, they may be on the other side of that battle line. That doesn't mean they're a horrible person. There may be other things going on there. And I think that, um, you know, going back to that article and, um, you know, the point that it was trying, I think it was, um, you know, many points were raised and it was kind of a, a short um, short piece. So, you know, yeah. a lot of the, they maybe just space constraints prevented um, a fuller development of some of these arguments, which I think you have to approach with a degree of nuance. You can't just say like, you know, it's not like you can just hit problematic or unproblematic and just like check the box and be like, right. nope, it's totally fine. Or, oh, nope, it's completely like corrupted. Um, but I think the point there is what's unfortunate is that it misses making the point that within Tolkien's own writings, there are multiple avenues to explore questions of, um, you know, different cultures, different races, different peoples colliding and interacting um, in unexpected ways and facing prejudices, um, and that those have, you know, maybe been overlooked in adaptation so far, and there's room to engage with them in an authentic way. Um, So, I mean, that was kind of, uh, I was, you know, disappointed by the statement um, that all, uh, you know, all enemies in Middle Earth are brown people and all brown people in Middle Earth are enemies because um, whether or not you want to say that there's room for maybe um, some expansion or complexification within the uh, dichotomies that Tolkien sets up in his writings, um, you know, that's a legitimate argument and there's really um, some interesting inquiries into that direction. I think the the takeaway that I would have preferred is Tolkien himself left us avenues to 
make this a complicated issue and bring some nuance to this issue um, that could easily be expanded on in a way that's um, authentic and respectful to the highest ideals um, that I think Tolkien was consciously trying to champion. Ones of, like you said, you know, um, not necessarily, you know, overcoming one's prejudices and recognizing common humanity. Uh, so, you know, yeah. generally good stuff. Yeah. And um, there were kind of some variations on that theme that I wanted to address, but in the interest of time, I think I'm going to skip over them. Um, there are two other kind of more specific things, and these aren't really in the stories per se, except kind of by, by um, inference, but he also mm -hmm. kind of raises these issues a little bit in his letters. And the two that I'm thinking of here are the connection between dwarves and Jews, which mm -hmm. he admittedly, you know, said that there are, you know, characteristics in common. Uh, and also his description of orcs being, and I think this might've been in his letter to, um, what was the guy that he was trying to get to publish the Silmarillion? Waldman there's or... well there was um there's a description that i found um the guy who was trying to make a film out of it Maybe. and he'd put feathers on his orcs <laughs> and tolkien was like that's not how they should look and then he went yeah. on to give a, a description of what he thought the orcs should should be yeah. which he ends up for. he ends up describing the orcs as and i'm going to try to quote it as exactly as possible but i don't have it in front of me is the least lovely to us of the mongoloid types yeah and I, a I lot of people will point just to that word mongoloid and say oh he's a racist he's using that word which i mean like some people i think don't know the history of that word at one time that was just a common word that just meant simply anybody of you know it kind of meant that area of the asian continent that's you know anybody mm -hmm. there is mongoloid in the same way that people would be called caucasoid you know, in, in Europe. So the word by itself is not, I think, really an issue. People, people try to turn the modern sense of that word back into history, and that doesn't really work. But the more significant issue here is the comparison, like, oh, well, orcs are just really ugly Mongols, and then dwarves are like Jews, and they're a bunch of greedy, you know, whatevers. Right. And people will take that and kind of over, again, I think this is an oversimplification, and I think it's an oversimplification for a couple of reasons. People will say that the mongoloid comment is really ugly and racist because he's like, they're not lovely. And he's, you know, my whole take on that is, is he specifically calls out least lovely to us. You know, yeah, ev I... every culture has its own beauty standards. Like a, a European who's never grown up around Asians is probably not going to find most Asians as attractive as the you know european beauty ideal in the same way that most asians who've never grown up around europeans are probably not going to find europeans as attractive as their own asian beauty ideal that's just a product of being brought up in a culture that's just the way it goes um and a lot of people take the dwarven comment i think in ways that tolkien didn't even write it let alone intended because the specific things he calls out are the fact that they are you know, they're secretive, they have their own language that they speak among themselves, which Jews in Europe did that. They have their own Hebrew language that they speak among themselves, but don't really speak anywhere else. And a lot of that is the product of actual past 
racism against Jews. You know, the medieval yeah. period, there was a lot of that. And so they kind of had to be insular. And he's just making that comparison. Like they do have these similarities. And in fact, Kuzdul, the Dwarven language, is in some ways based on yeah. the Hebrew language in a lot of ways. And quite, and I think, you know, he, I think there's, I don't know about the letter, but there's an interview in which he says, you know, consciously I modeled that language on the Semitic languages. Right. So, I mean, that was kind of my just quick yeah. thoughts on those so, topics, but. Yeah, I think, I think the thing here is, as you said, you can't treat either of those issues without nuance. Um, you know, you can't pretend that Tolkien didn't like live in a society and grow up in a culture. Um, like we all live in a society. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important to, I think it's important and valuable to interrogate and question that. And I was, I was doing research for this um, discussion and, you know, there are some really well-argued, sensitive, nuanced looks at, for example, um, how the dwarves function as potentially an analog for the Jews in Middle-earth um, and the evolution of that. You know, uh, this, I was reading an article where the author was comparing the differences between the Hobbit and the dwarves, how they're figured there. <laughs> well, seriously, to the yeah. Lord of the Rings, where it's, you know, almost a 180. And then in, um, you know, the appendices, too, uh, there's this line that the author of this paper was citing, um, where she points out that um, a lot of times what had happened to the dwarves is that they had received this... Um, you know, this reputation for being miserly and greedy because of the envy of humans, men who, you know, wanted their stuff. And if, you know, Gimli's attitude towards rocks and crystals is very different from, say, Thorin's attitude towards, like, gold and, and the dragon horde. And um, so, you know, there's, a again, a distinction to be made between what Tolkien's consciously trying to say, what he's unconsciously, you know, maybe... Um, saying without realizing it, um, what is a product of his, you know, culture and upbringing and conditioning, and in what ways did that understanding change over the course of his life? And I think that, you know, looking at that seriously and carefully and addressing points where it's like, hey, you know, this, this is kind of a problem. Or, you know, if we decided nowadays to create a fantasy universe in which all of the like, you know, you had this race that was created by a dark god and was fundamentally evil. And how do we want them to look in and like, you know, adaptation? Well, I'm not sure, but it would make sense that they would look like, you know, a debased form of like the worst stereotypes of a different like race racial group. Like we we would not do that in 2020, hopefully. Um, Tolkien did it in 1958. Um, and you also have to yeah. remember, this goes back to a comment we made way earlier about the, the tradition in which he was writing. Yeah. He, he rewrote the legend of Sigurd and Gudrun, and that has been published since. And like, there's a whole thing in that that ends up being the Goths versus the Huns. So Tolkien was already writing in the vein of the enemies are... In, in, they they look like the Huns. So, I mean, it, it makes sense that his first thing to do is to go, okay, I need an enemy. What are they going to look like? 
might as well look like the enemies from the Sigurd saga. Like, yeah. mean, uh, and that's, you know, you could call that racist. I might call it lazy. You know, I mean, right. he's not trying to do a George Lucas thing where he comes up with 50 different alien species to slap into the, the bar at Mos Eisley. He's drawing on historical representations of things that would have been in ancient literature because he's trying to emulate that kind of story it's yeah it's more of an uncritical um appropriation of norms that with a little bit of thought you know you would hope that even someone writing 50 or 100 years ago would recognize you know this is maybe not um the most just (laughs) trope but it's there and no one's you know no one's really gonna notice it um probably so i'm just gonna go with it and use it um yeah so so uncritically accepting things that um you know now we i think have more sensitivity to that that's definitely a a legitimate criticism yeah Um, and you you could see why peter jackson went the route he did with you know making the orcs look completely other they don't look like a human species that's just been degraded they look they look like a they look more different than elves and humans certainly mm-hmm. and more different than any you know human race in our own real world and what he does play up uh jackson is the elvish you know right. traits uh the urukai have those pointed ears and the long braids um, you know, he's going with a more degraded elf rather than degraded elf and human and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. That is maybe what Tolkien had more in mind when, uh, you know, writing Lord of the Rings. Um, so, I mean, I think the point with these particular ones is that you don't want to, it's disingenuous to try and either dismiss the argument by saying, well, none of that matters um, this is a made up world and, you know, I know what Tolkien was thinking and it's not, you know, it's not what you think it, he was thinking. It's what I want him to be thinking. <laughs> um, so you can't say that these things don't matter. Um, likewise, if you're hoping to um, seriously engage with these issues and have, you know, a productive conversation about them, um, it's disingenuous to treat them as again like you know a litmus test check yes check no problematic unproblematic you know acceptable or unacceptable um without acknowledging the complexity of the issue both within like quote the lore sort of the in-universe complexity and then just the general you know this is a work of art it's a it wasn't conceived in a vacuum it's a product of a human being who was living and working and you know, had complex motives and drives and changed over time. Um, so, and, and, you know, if you say, well, you know, he said X, therefore bad, um, what you're actually going to end up doing is just you know, make it very difficult to meaningfully argue um, that these tropes deserve examination. Um, and, and like, you know, I I feel like I'm using all of my lit major terms, but like engaging with those issues, um, you know, pondering them. That's not going to happen if you try and reduce, you know, take take lines out of context, oversimplify things um, and just try to, you know, make it a black and white issue. When I think the the takeaway here is that this isn't easy stuff. It's not, you know, clear cut stuff. 
um, it's stuff that should be, um, you know, examined closely and thoughtfully and seriously. Um, and you can't reduce it to just a talking point or a takeaway. Yeah. And, and so just to kind of wrap up both in terms of the sexism and the racism, but yes. more so in, in terms of the racism, because I think with the sexism, I think it's kind of clear that he's actually really trying to elevate the female in, in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, but even in which could be of, problematic in itself. But I mean, I've done a bunch of, yeah. um, you know, looking at the facts that even his quote elevated women have, um, you know, a diversity to them, not no two female characters. Right. Um, even the idealized ones are exactly the same. Uh, but yeah, like, continue. Yeah. Uh, but it, yeah, so I mean, the idea is, you know, that what people tend to say if they are really pushed is, well, he wasn't overtly racist, but he was still a man of his time. And this kind of goes to what, what you were saying about him uncritically accepting, you know, the kinds of things like the Huns being the enemies and stuff like that. It's, Okay, but it wasn't just that he was a man of his time. It was, like you said, he was trying to do a specific thing with specific motives, and those things kind of changed over time. Mm -hmm. And so to say that Tolkien was just kind of uncritically accepting of racist tropes, I think, is still just a little bit too oversimplified. Is he accepting tropes that have that kind of connotation? Yes, but you also have to remember too, and Tolkien would have known this being a medievalist, if you go back far enough, I mean, people had racial prejudices against not just people who looked radically different, but against like people the next border over. The French right. hate the Germans. I mean, the the racist distinction for Tolkien would not have even necessarily been one that boiled down to skin color or you know, eye slant or anything like that. So when he's using these kinds of tropes, I don't even know that we could necessarily plausibly infer that he's thinking in terms of the racial dynamic because, you know, the racial dynamic would have been equally as applicable between, say, Romans and Germans. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they still think of each other as radically different, even if they don't look as different as you know, the Germans would have looked from the Huns. So it's, you know, you, you really do have to add layers and layers and layers of nuance into this before you can really get to the bottom of it, because it's, it's just way more complex than most people are willing to give it credit for and to really look into because Tolkien was working from a base of knowledge that was vaster than most of us will ever have let alone mm -hmm. on that particular topic. So it's just, it, it's, you know, if you want to say that his work is in some way still contributing to bad racial stereotypes and stuff like that, okay, that might be an argument we could have. But I think the minute you start saying that he was just uncritically accepting of racist tropes, eh, that's a little harder because... Well, like, I... And I think, you know, I, when I said that, I was specifically talking about that particular comment of what do you want the orcs to look like? Well, they should look like some version of X, yeah. um, where X is like a group of like real actual human people with like hopes and dreams. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> right. But I mean, but, we still do have, you know, within the stories themselves, as we've already pointed out, 
Tolkien does try to humanize the other. Right. And, and Sam I, does it and all these other characters do it. I think that's the other thing. You know, you said he's most people will draw a distinction between Tolkien was overtly racist versus, well, he was just a man of his time versus he was uncritically accepting of, you know, his received cultural standards. You know, he was shaped by his culture. There's no getting around that. We all are. But I think right. what, you know, if we're, God, if we're going to talk about like what the quote spirit of Tolkien is, and I'm like doing massive scare quotes and like shuddering because I hate, you know, the yeah. idea that there's some authentically Tolkien like ideal. Um, but I think it's useful to look at the ways an artist is engaging with his culture. Right. Um, and becoming more aware of his culture. Uh, and again, you know, the progression um, in how these things are dealt with, like, is really interesting to trace throughout the 50 or 60 years that he was composing. Um, and I think that based on my reading, what we see is an attempt to, like you said, engage with humanizing the other and an attempt to... Um, you know, elevate ideals of common humanity over things like, um, you know, petty prejudices and differences um, and, an, you know, a, a willingness to engage with the idea that it's like the new shadow tells us this, all humans are fallen, even the mighty proud Numenorians descendant of Luthien and Melian themselves. Um, you know, get up to some real shady business and, <laughs> and you know, you can admire, um, you know, aspects of Numenorean culture and at the same time point out like the flaws within it. And I think that's, um, you know, well, Tolkien from, him, yeah. From, Tol from Tolkien's kind of Christian point of view, you know, one of the things that Jesus says in the Gospels is to whom much has been given of him, much will be required. It's the fact that Numenor had all these advantages, which makes their fall that much worse. Right. They have no excuse. Right. <laughs> They're, you know, taught by the Valar themselves. Um, and they still managed to mess it up just through, you know, not through d being disadvantaged or, you know, oh, well, the yeah, cultural assumptions or whatever. No, they start out with the best, you know, chance of getting it right. And it's through their weakness and their pride and their greed and their self-aggrandizement that they that they do fall so yeah i you know common humanity and the common um fall of you fallenness uh, of humanity and by humanity i i do also i extend it to to hobbits dwarves elves etc right um yeah i th i think that is the direction in which he was trying to engage um with what you know the the cultural and artistic legacy that he had inherited um did he do it perfectly no like he was <laughs> he was like a single human being and he did not you know he didn't always hit um that mark and sometimes he probably misfired in ways that he didn't even realize he was misfiring um but i think the the takeaway is that he wanted to make this issue complicated he didn't want there to be good guys and bad guys he didn't want there to be you know a perfect race and a and a degraded race um especially again toward the end of his life he's really wrestling with the orc question he's like i've created yeah. these fictional monsters 
um, even from the point of view that they are fictional monsters, can we justify, you know, saying that they're like always chaotic evil, you know, <laughs> to use yeah, the, the D&D irredeemable. Yeah, and that really bothers him, you know, by the end of his life, he's like, that's, you know, not gonna work um, with what I believe about souls and, and embodied creatures and basically like humanity. Um, so yeah, I think, I think again, to dismiss it out of hand on either side is just doing, um, a disservice to the actual text and to, you know, the value that could, uh, come out of having real, again, serious reflection and, um, discussion of issues that are actually like really important when you come down to it. Yeah. So <clears throat> really heavy topic, but yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, we probably I don't even want to know how long we've gone. This is going to be a fun to edit. But uh, so uh, yeah, with all the... there's, you know, endless amounts of conversation to be had on this topic. Obviously, um, if you're going to comment on it in the comment section below, all I ask is that you please keep it civil. <laughs> don't yeah, don't really? be don't be jerks. Uh, try to keep it nuanced. Really, that's really the the point here. Um, so great to have you on again. Of course, I will have all my social links, and I will also link to Curl Next Gondor stuff in the description and all that good stuff. Uh, don't forget, I do now have a Discord server that you can join, um, and we'll have to come up with another topic to talk about sometime in the future. I don't know that we've got another really good Tolkien and the critics angle to go at. Uh, I, I have some thoughts. I have some ideas. I'll, we'll, we can okay. circle back. All right. <laughs> well, we will, we will be in touch and hopefully the next one will be just as great as the first three. Uh, and in that vein, we will leave everybody with a very hearty Namarie. Bye guys. Thanks to all my Patreon patrons, especially Ringbearer Ego Voice and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Deanna Kaufman, Tracy Meehan, and Nathan Dufour. <laughs>